So if you're able, please remain standing and turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We've been going through Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome, verse by verse, passage by passage, and this morning we're at Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, and that will be our reading for this morning. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come to you now uh, confessing our insufficiency to hear, understand, believe, and apply your word. And so we pray for the ministry of your spirit to come now and bless the reading and preaching of it. We ask for your own glory and in the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. We live in a fallen world, and life in a fallen world often includes a concept of love that is fallen. Men know their obligation to love others, and men want to be loved by others. And we see this in our society. We see that society laments about this in song. Uh, Society uh, dreams about it in It's literature, and in our society, uh, men try to coerce love, even through political means. And these fallen ideas of love can lead Bible-believing Christians to be on guard when other people talk about loving others, even in the church. I could say especially in the church, because often when someone talks about loving others, Uh, The concept of love they bring to the table is all-encompassing, indiscriminate, accepting all lifestyles and all sorts of sin. And this type of love, therefore, embraces everyone and everything. But as we've seen in Romans chapter 12, verse 9 there, the apostle says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil cling to that which is good. Biblical love is discriminating, and we see that in the Bible. And so we Christians mustn't be hesitant to love others. We are, in fact, told we are commanded to love our neighbors, to love one another in the very text we have before us this morning. And so the question is, how do we love other people? How do we love each other? How do we love our neighbors? That's the question at hand. And so the passage answers that. And as we look at it this morning, we'll talk about the debt of love and the definition of Christian love. So first of all, then, the debt of love, that is there in verse 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. And so as we talk about this, remember Within the context of Paul's letter, this is a transition. He's beginning a new subject. 
He's already been talking about our subjection as Christians to the civil magistrate, the government. We are to pay our taxes, and we are to pay honor to whom honor is due, even the king, the magistrate. And so now he's talking about paying this debt of love to other men and women. And the sense there, if you're looking at it, when he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, the idea is make sure that you pay your debts. Make sure that you pay what it is that you owe. When he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. And so, in other words, I'm, I'm seeking to answer this question. Maybe you've had it in your mind. And the question is, does the Bible, does the Word of God forbid debt in every form or fashion? And the answer to that is no. It warns against it. We'll see that in a second. But I just want to bring this up because maybe you've researched this or heard others talk about it or you've wondered yourself. The Bible doesn't necessarily forbid all forms of financial debt. Uh, for instance, in Exodus 22, in verse 25, God says to his people, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. And so for God's people to lend money to other Christians uh, is not wrong. He says, if you lend, just don't do it with interest. And in those times, by the way, interest was often uh, very, very high. In Psalm 37, in verse 26, speaking of the righteous man, it says there, he is ever merciful and lends. He lends, and his descendants are blessed. And so the implication we can come away with is that the righteous man lends. He lends money to others. And so for someone to lend means that someone has to borrow. And in that situation, it's not by necessity evil or forbidden by God. In fact, our Savior in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 42 says, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And also in Luke 6, 35, Jesus says, Love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. And so borrowing in and of itself is not sinful, as we see. Perhaps you're wondering, what about interest at all? Well, there's that parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And in verse 27, we see there that the faithful servant actually puts the talent in the bank or would have put money in the bank and earned interest for his master. And so there are people who take business loans in our day, and if they meet all the biblical requirements, they are not unjust. And today, perhaps some of you, some of us here, have certain debts, you know, in our society. As much as I hate it personally, uh, some of us have mortgages, maybe you have a, a car payment, and it's not by necessity evil. And the other side of the coin, biblically speaking, is, um, well, the Bible warns us of debt, right? Think about this. These are just a few scriptures. We are uh, forewarned um, to, to be careful with whom we 
get into contracts with, um, and even vowing or making a promise in a contract. It says in Ecclesiastes 5.5, it's better not to vow, that is to promise, it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay, whether it's to God or to other men to make such commitments. In Proverbs, Proverbs 22, in verse 26, it says, Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debts. And that means to co-sign for another person. In fact, the Bible warns us that debt creates an undesirable relationship between the borrower and the lender, right? In Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7, it says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. And uh, before I get into a Crown Financial seminar or Dave Ramsey uh, seminar, let me just say a few other words. Uh, make sure you plan well financially. If you're young, uh, now is the time to be thinking about that, uh, about to earn money or perhaps young and earning money. Be thinking about the future and what that looks like and get help, not from me, but from a financially, biblically savvy person. Uh, in Proverbs 21, verse 5, it says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Again, in Proverbs 11, in verse 15, we're warned to be careful not to co-sign for someone, or at least to be careful who it is we co-sign with or for. It says there, he who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but one who hates being surety is secure. And the Bible goes a step further. You see, if we incur debt, it could be, it doesn't have to be this, but it could be that one is living above his or her means, that a person's heart is in the wrong place, or that person is simply not trusting God. I didn't say by necessity it's that way, but it could be. Think about these verses. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That is money. Either God will be your God or money will be your God. You can't have God and money at the same time as your God. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, it says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. You can never have enough money. Even the rich never have enough. It's like power. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You know, all the things the Gentiles, the unbeliever, the non-Christian thinks and worries about, that which consumes him. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to live? How am I going to live? Don't worry. Jesus says, don't worry about six times there. He says, no, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek that first, and all these things will be added unto you. It takes faith to do that, right? It takes faith to work all week, to earn a living, and take uh, part of that paycheck, the first part, the tenth of it, whatever, and to tithe that to the Lord and to trust Him to bring in the rest and to pay 
your bills and to give you what you need. In Hebrews 13, 5, it gets to the heart of the matter there. It says this, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, not all debt is wrong. And here we are told to pay our debts, owe no one anything except to love one another. To be content with what we have, that is to pay our debts on time. So even if you're renting a home or a place to live, you, you have a debt that is due every month. And you're to pay it on time. But Paul here, he finishes, he says, do, do or owe no one anything except to love one another. And so there is one debt we are to have. There is one debt we can never really pay, and that is to love one another, the debt of love. It is a recurring debt, he says. Now, again, I've already mentioned in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, he talks about this. He says, there be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. And uh, he talks about spiritual gifts, and he's talking about Christians loving other Christians, serving other Christians in the body, using those gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, as we'll see, I think he's speaking not only in that sense, but even more broad. He's talking about all men, loving our neighbors as the commandment says. And so, our Lord Jesus he told us this in John 13 and verse 34, right? He said, there, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so our Lord Jesus adds that feature to love, that we are to love in the manner that he has loved us sacrificially, laying down his own life, taking up his own cross, and if we're going to love others, indeed, that is what it will take, as we'll see. And so we're to owe no man anything except that of love. And so the question is, what does this love look like? How are we to love others? Well, Paul's going to answer that. We could go to 1 Corinthians 13. That would be part of it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not rude. All of those things, that's the counterpart. But here, Paul does something very interesting. He connects love with the moral law of God. Remember, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, there is a relationship with God and our relationship with others addressed in the Ten Commandments. The first table deals with our relationship to God. We're to have no other gods before us. We are not to make graven images. We're not to take his name in vain. We're to honor his day, all of that. But then it starts to address how we treat others. We aren't to kill other people. We aren't to steal from other people to covet and commit adultery and all of those, those things. So there's three ways that he describes this divine love, this agape love in our text. If you look there in verse 8, it says, For he who loves another has fulfilled what? The law. Verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
In verse 9, it says, for the commandments, and if you keep reading, it says, for the commandments are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds like our Savior, doesn't it, in Matthew 22? He summarizes the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves, for all the law and the prophets hang on these two. And so in verse 10 of of our text, he says, love does no harm. It does no evil, that's the word there, no harm, no evil, no wrong to a neighbor. And so in verse 8, he says we're to love one another, quoting from the Old Testament here in the Septuagint, the, uh, the Greek translation of the original Hebrew text of the Old Testament, whether it's Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, it says we are to love our neighbor as our selves. So the question is, who is our neighbor, right? You remember that question in the Gospels? Maybe you haven't read it. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus talks about loving others, and he says we are to love our neighbors, and the guy he's talking to there is trying to wiggle his way out a little bit, perhaps, and he says, well, who is my neighbor? Because if there's a guy that's not my neighbor, maybe I don't have to love him, right? And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And a guy leaves Jerusalem, he's traveling on the roads, which were dangerous in those days, and, and guys come out, they attack him, they beat him up, leave him for dead, and they, they steal from him. There he is lying on the road. Well, guess what? There's a religious leader coming from Jerusalem. He walks on the other side of the road, and there's another one. He comes by, he bypass. you know, maybe he's got somewhere to be, he's got, a, he's got an appointment, he's got counseling to do, or something like that. And so he just keeps on going. He doesn't want to have any part of that. But then there's a Samaritan who really was an outcast in Jerusalem because of his pedigree, and he stops, and it says he has compassion on this one who has been clubbed over the head or whatever, and he takes care of him, he puts him in an inn, and he tells the inn owner, whatever he needs, charge it to my account. And then Jesus, after telling that story, he says, well, who is this guy's neighbor? You know, was it the the priest, was it the Levite, or was it the Samaritan who took care of him? And this is what it says in, in the gospel there. In Luke 10, 37, Jesus answered, as far as who is the neighbor, he who showed mercy on him. That was the one who was the neighbor. And so in our, our children's question and answer, you know, the catechism, who is my neighbor? All men. That's where we get that from. Yes, 1 John 3, 14 is true. Christians naturally have a fondness, an affection, and a love for one another. They've been born of the Holy Spirit. There's this attraction between Christians. They have the bond of the Spirit. They have the bond of love. They have the same salvation, the same Savior, the same Heavenly Father. They're members of the same family. So there's a natural affection for one another. It makes sense. 1 John 3, 14 says we know... We have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. 
And so if you don't love other Christians, you're not born again. And if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. You haven't passed from death unto life. You're still in death. That's what the Bible says. So if you hate going to church, if you hate being around Bible-believing Christians, you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you've been born again. The evidence of that is, one of the things that is an evidence of that, is that you love other Christians, even with their warts. That's right. And so the Bible says you are, you are taught by God how to love one another. It says that in Thessalonians, but at the same time, we're commanded to love one another. Why? Because sometimes we get selfish and we sin, and we have to be reminded of our duty, but also how to love one another. And so that's what Paul is doing here. What does this mean? Well, he says there in verse 8, he says, He who loves another has fulfilled the law. In verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. What does that mean? Remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to destroy the law. He says, I did not come to destroy the law, but what? To fulfill it. There could be a multiple sense of what he means there, meaning that the law, the Old Testament, foreshadowed Christ to come. There was a type, a figure, a picture of the one who was to come, and Jesus is the antitype of the type. He is the fulfillment of the picture. There is that. But if you look at the context, he says, I came not to destroy it. He didn't come to tear the law out of the Bible, but to fulfill it, to obey it to keep it, to observe it. And so when the Bible here says that love is the fulfillment of the law, I think we have to understand what Paul is saying is that love is the intent of the law. Remember Jesus, how do you summarize the law? Matthew 22, love for God, love for man. What are the two tables of the law? Love for God, love for man. And so the law is showing us, it not only shows us our sin, how we disobey God, but it shows us the intent of God's making us. Remember, we were created to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. We glorify God by loving Him and doing what He commands. So this is why we were created, to bring glory and honor to God, to love Him and to love others, to be in a world full of love. But again, we live in a fallen world. And so the law shows us where we fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And so as we see then, love does not, as one has said, love does not displace the law. Love is the fulfillment of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And so you love God. That's awesome. How do you show your love to God? John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, then keep my commandments. And the commandments include the first table. The commandments also include the second table. Love for God, love for neighbor, as we see here. You might ask, well, what about the first table? Paul doesn't mention that here. Uh, well, in one sense, he already has mentioned it in Romans 12 because he's talking about justification. He's talking about the forgiveness of sins we have only through the Lord Jesus Christ and how glorious that is. And so he comes to chapter 12 in the first two verses, 
And he says, I beg you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In light of the mercy of God shown through the Lord Jesus Christ, offer your own body a living and continual sacrifice to God. That is our response. That is how we are to show our love and affection and thanksgiving to the living God. And so here he's talking about, in Romans 13, he's talking about the second table, love for neighbor. Being salt and light, as our Savior put it in the Sermon on the Mount. And so in verse 9 of our text, he talks about how all of the commandments are summed up. They're literally brought together in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to talk about convicting? You want to see how much you don't? Maybe, maybe you don't. I'll confess. You want to see how much I don't love my neighbor? I need to answer the question, do I love my neighbor as I love myself? This is not Maslow's hierarchy. This is not humanistic psychology telling us, oh, we must love self. No, we already do. There is an inordinate love of self, by the way. It's called idolatry. Men will become, Paul says in the last days, lovers of what? Self. He tells that to 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy. But the point is, there, there is a sense, though, in which we do love and adorn ourselves. Um, in Ephesians, Paul, you know, husbands, and you young men who are single, maybe engaged, will be married one day, uh, we're thick-headed. And Paul is basically telling us, look, not only is this right before God for you to love your wife, um, if you do, it will be great for you. It will go well. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And he talks about all of that. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. So just as you take care of your own body, just as you feed your own body and clothe it and make sure it's healthy and all of these things, do that for your wife. And he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. It's assumed that we take care of our own bodies, that we do love ourselves. But the Bible says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, your neighbor is that person who lives next door whether it's two feet in some of these neighborhoods or it's two acres away. That's your literal neighbor. But also, as Jesus points out, your neighbor is the person with whom you come into contact in God's providence. Do you know your neighbor's name? You may not get along with your neighbor. That's why Paul has already said, if at all possible, as much as depends on you, be at peace with all men. And yet, if you live next door to that person, you are still to love that person. And as Galatians 6 says, we are to do good to all men, but especially the household of God. So there is that, you could call it a tension or an inner circle, the inner circle of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love each other supremely, and we are to do good and to love those who are outside 
of the body of Christ. In verse 10, he says, love does no harm to a neighbor. That's interesting. I think that is helpful. You know, children, maybe you're wondering, well, how, how do I know if I love someone? How do I know if I love my brother, my sister, my friend, my neighbor, my mom, my dad, my grandparents, my pastor, whomever, my teacher? Well, love does no harm to a neighbor. Verse 10. Think about physical harm. That's a given. That's the obvious one. Love doesn't walk up to someone and punch them in the nose. If it's self-defense, we can talk about that. That's another thing. Ask your parents about that, kids. Self-defense is valid, legitimate self-defense. But it doesn't attack someone physically because, you know, they didn't do what you liked. What about emotionally? We attack with our words. Our tongues become knives. Or spiritually, when we sin against God and sin against our neighbors, we lead them into the path of destruction that leads to hell. And so love does not do that. So Paul mentions the commandments here in order to illustrate it. He says, you know, um, in verse uh, 9, these are the commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Um, children, adultery, we could put it this way. Adultery is a, a, a man or a woman treating another man or woman as if he or she is his husband or wife when he or she is not his or her husband or wife. You see, people can't say, well, we did that. We committed adultery because we loved one another. That's how people often justify it. We fell in love. No, you didn't. You fell into sin against that person and against God. And you brought that person down. Uh, don't forget about the immoral woman, especially you men, in Proverbs chapter 7. It says in verse 27 about the immoral woman who lures the man into that adulterous relationship. It says her house is the way to hell, descending into the chambers of death. Now let me tell you, in that context, in that days, before electricity, before the internet, before phones and smartphones, you had to go outside of your home to commit adultery. But now you can commit adultery by yourself. You know what I'm talking about. Anywhere. Through the adultery entertainment business. If you struggle with that, if you know someone who does, just think about that image. Um, that is someone's son or daughter. Probably an estranged son or daughter. It could be a person who is involved in human trafficking. It could be a person who is kidnapped. Think about that. And as Paul says elsewhere, shall we join the Lord to a harlot? We don't do that physically when we do those things, but it is a spiritual sin that takes place. It begins all in the heart. I've, I've said this in my home, whether it's a computer or a phone, 
it can be a portal to hell. Whether it's someone reaching us or our children, parents, with ungodly and unbiblical worldviews through social media or through the adultery entertainment business. And so keep that in mind. But he also says here, well, let me just let me mention this as well, since we're talking about it. There's fornication. And that's the act outside of marriage. And just think about it. You're you're involved in that. And uh, or when you become involved in that, you're you're possibly potentially messing with someone's future spouse. If that person doesn't marry you, by the way, you say, well, we're going to get married anyway. Well, I can tell you, um, you're going to have counseling later. Probably, because there will be trust issues. And so we, we involve ourselves in these things, hopefully not. But when people do, it is not true love. There's murder here. Murder is an attack on the image of God and man. We see that in Genesis 9-6. It's the opposite of the preservation of life. And by the way, just as adultery begins in the heart, murder begins in the heart. Every sin begins in the heart. In 1 John 3.15, it says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Leviticus 19.17, the Old Testament, by the way, God says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. He talks about stealing here in our passage. That's taking someone else's property without asking that person. Um, It might include breaking and entering, or it could be stealing time from your employer. Uh, Stealing can happen in many different ways. Overcharging, price gouging, gasoline, you know, things like this. Uh, Deceitful contracts in business, unfaithfulness in business contracts. Perhaps you signed a contract. You said, I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay. Then you just decide, well, I can't do it. I'm going to stop. Well, that's stealing. It's also bearing false witness. The government often takes more than its own share and gives to others. Being lazy and not working, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 tells us that is a form of theft. I mean, it says there, if you don't work, you shall not eat. Now, what if a person cannot work? Then, yeah, we we help that person. That's an act of love, right? Because in Ephesians 4, 28, it says that sharing is part of love. Parents, teach your children to share, whether it's food or their toys, and to model our Heavenly Father as we'll see, who shared his only begotten son. He mentions coveting here. Elsewhere he says it's idolatry. That is an inordinate desire for what others have. It is discontentment with what you do have. It is discontentment with the living God, as Hebrews 13 shows us. Um, Sometimes people covet their neighbor's goods so much that they lie And steal from them, yes, even kill to have what they have. 
And so if we're going to try to love our neighbor, as John Calvin put it hundreds of years ago, we are to give up all thought of self and, he says, so to speak, get out of ourselves. We must, he says, yield willingly what is ours by right and resign, that is voluntary, voluntarily leave it to another. We must take what we've been given by God and apply it to the common good of the church, he notes, and to do that liberally and kindly. You see, true love gives, true love shares. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. He didn't, you know, he didn't give up something that cost him nothing. He gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so, by the way, if you're sitting there and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm digging up bones, just remember the gospel God gave so that we wouldn't perish. He gave his son who would pay for our sins. And so when it comes to, to these things and loving one another, um, when we don't love another, this is why we get upset when our plans are derailed by the inconvenience of someone else's need. You know what I'm talking about? Um, our plan is to be somewhere on time, but we have the inconvenience of someone else's dirty diaper, and we get upset. Or we have the plan of a life that doesn't include the inconvenience of having an elderly parent in poor health. Or a special needs child. Or our plan is to purchase that new dress, the new tennis racket, the new golf club. But that's wrecked because our child has a need that was unforeseen. And so we must take that money and put it towards that need. But if we love our child, if we love the one with the dirty diaper, if we love our parents, special needs child, we we bow to our Creator, and we love those whom we are called to love. Now, some here may not know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you've been given an abundance. I don't, I don't know. There are those in this county, surely, who have. They don't know much about sacrifice. They have an abundance. Well, here's the question. Here's the question to us all. Are you loving God, and are you loving your neighbor? Are you selfless or selfish? Do you give away your money? Perhaps you can't. Do you give away your time, your resources to others in need? And when you do, do you do it grudgingly? Go read 2 Corinthians 8 sometime. Paul mentions that there. But the Lord loves a cheerful giver. 
God knows our hearts. He knows our ways. And he addresses us perfectly. But are you in a relationship to give or to get? We've been taught the right way, haven't we? By God himself. Remember this world sat in darkness and they saw a great light. It was the light of the Lord Jesus Christ who came, who was sent by his heavenly father. And he came because he loved his heavenly father. He did it willingly. He submitted to his will. Jesus came, he said, Matthew 20, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, for many. And why did Jesus endure a life in this fallen world? Why did Jesus endure giving away his time and his energy, teaching people, healing people time and again? Remember, he and the disciples, they went away to get a little respite, to get a little rest. And who came? The multitudes flocking behind him. Did he say, no, call my secretary? No, he healed them. Selflessness. Why did he do that? Why did he willfully suffer such emotional and physical pain and the very torments of hell on the cross for you and for me, beloved? He did it so that through his death we might live and that through his shed blood all of our sins might be washed away. And why did he do that? He did it, John 15, 13 says in his own words, because greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He did it because he loved us. And so now, beloved of God, let us go and follow our Savior's example, and love one another. Amen.